Today's scripture reading comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. I I, want to start this morning by engaging a bit of a hypothetical scenario. This isn't a hypothetical scenario like, imagine the Nebraska Cornhuskers beat the Ohio State Buckeyes. This one will be much more realistic And it has to do specifically with the church. So so let's imagine a a scenario for a moment. I want you to think about two people. They're sitting right beside one another in church. They do very similar things. They pray regularly. They attend church regularly. They give time and money generously. They share with others. They serve in ministries, maybe in production or in the kids' ministry or in hospitality, maybe even all three. Both are good at caring for their family. Both of these individuals model ideal behavior. Man, they are good. They bake cookies for others. They take out the trash when they're supposed to. They serve on the neighborhood association or the PTA. They don't engage in consuming questionable media content. Maybe they have even rejected Netflix on principles of its content standards. These people even help old ladies cross the street. And each of these individuals prayed to receive Christ, maybe when when they were a teen or maybe in their 20s. Here's the concern. One is rooted in the Christian faith, and the other is not. What's the difference? What marks the one rooted in the Christian faith? One of these individuals solely trusts in Christ as the source of her or his standing with God. The other trusts in religious practices and ideal behaviors as a source of her or his standing with God. For those less familiar with me, my my name is Paul Gardner, and I serve as one of the pastors at First City Church. If you've been here the past few weeks, you know we've begun a sermon series in the book of Galatians. And and you know a theme in this letter is the Apostle Paul's desire to clarify what it means to be rooted in the Christian faith. Paul is concerned some have embraced something false and have wandered from the gospel. It is not that they are embracing sinful behavior rooted in individual freedom, 
Rather, they're looking to religion, religious behaviors, and ideal moral behavior as the source of their standing with God. So, so before we get to that concern, let's acknowledge that Paul and those he is addressing, they actually agree on some things. They, they agree that God is holy and people are not. They agree that people are sinful. And they agree that sin makes people unclean and unacceptable before the Lord. As such, because we are sinners, they agree we are not worthy of God's favor. We deserve punishment. To be acceptable before the Lord, to be worthy of God's favor, we must be holy. We must be righteous. So you will not encounter Paul addressing topics of sin and God's holiness in this letter. You would read others, other of his letters for those types of issues because those things are less at stake with the Galatians. What is of primary importance is how a sinner becomes righteous. How a sinner becomes worthy of God's favor. How does that happen? Is a sinner made righteous because of God's work on their behalf or because of how the sinner embraces particular behaviors and religious practices? Paul is addressing that embracing a position that sinners are made righteous through religious practice is contrary to the gospel. So chapter 3 begins, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul is alarmed. He uses pointed language here to get the attention of his audience. The English scholar J.B. Phillips paraphrases, O foolish Galatians, this way. O you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic. If I had an English accent, that would probably sound much better. (laughs) Paul doesn't want the Galatians to take this topic lightly. They are destroying the gospel in their lives and in the lives of others. So he addresses them in a manner to call out their foolishness. In addition, he asks a series of questions, beginning with, who has bewitched you? In case you're confused, these questions, they're they're not intended for dialogue. Rather, they're they're rhetorical in nature to assert a point. He is wanting his listeners to understand the foolishness of how they are living. So he's trying to awaken people who have wandered from the faith. Paul recognizes the Galatians he is addressing are rooting the Christian faith in their good works rather than in Christ. He, he describes such behavior in this passage as trusting in works of the flesh or trusting in the law to make us righteous. He is concerned, rather than believing it is the good news of the gospel that saves us, they are believing it is our good works. So our big idea this morning is stop living like your good works save you. To emphasize this big idea, we're going to examine the faith of a believer 
from three different angles. Conversion into the faith, continuing in the faith, and a case in point from the faith. So if you, if you have your Bible or a Bible app that you follow along on your phone, go ahead and open it up. Again, as, as Eric said earlier, if you don't have a Bible and you want one, we have some in the back. You're welcome to grab one. You can keep that if you want, or you can put it back when you're done. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3 in the first six verses. And so let's begin with verses 1 and 2. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul begins by examining the faith of a believer, focusing on conversion into the faith. He wants the Galatians to look back at when they embraced the Christian faith. If being unholy was a problem, what made them holy? What made them righteous? What saved them from the power of sin and death? So Paul talks about how the message of the cross was publicly portrayed. It was graphically communicated to the point that people could see the crucifixion with their own eyes. They understood how Christ was beaten as an innocent man. They understood how the nails were pounded into his hands for the sins that you and I committed. They understood how the wrath of God was poured out on him and he became utterly alone. What made you righteous? What made you acceptable to God? It was Christ crucified. And when you were converted, you received the Spirit. The Spirit was a gift. You didn't earn the Spirit because of a decision you made or because you prayed a prayer of salvation a particular way or because you responded to an altar call and you didn't attain the Spirit because of your maturity as a Christian, because you attained some level of intellectual knowledge or moral behavior or or maturity relating to spiritual rhythms and practices. The Spirit of God was a gift. So one of, one of my favorite stories, or one of, my, one, of, one of the interesting stories out there with a, an account of a conversion of sorts, is a movie called Shawshank Redemption, okay? There's multiple men who are imprisoned at a state penitentiary. They're experiencing the penalty for sins committed against others and committed against the state. They are sitting under judgment. They have been condemned, how, how are they set free from such a situation? Well, there's a, a central character in the story, and his, his name is Andy Dufresne. Despite his claims of innocence, Andy has been sentenced to life in prison for the murder of his wife and the man she was cheating on him with. The climax of the movie is the scene of Andy's liberation. It is a scene as he escapes the prison grounds. He rises out of the water, a new man. It is the symbol of his conversion into a new life. He's now free. 
He is no longer sitting under judgment. He is no longer defeated by the power of wrongdoing. How was Andy converted into this new life? Well, at some point in the story, he obtained a rock hammer. And over the course of 19 years, his 19-year sentence, he used that rock hammer to slowly chisel out a tunnel. And on, on the day of his escape, he crawled through the tunnel and he made his way into a cramped sewer system filled with disgusting bodily discharge that exited the prison grounds. This is how the narrator of the story describes his final push to freedom with a word or two modified. Andy crawled to freedom through 500 yards of poop-smelling foulness I can't even imagine. 500 yards. That's the length of five football fields, just shy of half a mile. There's a way that many of us resonate with this type of conversion story. Andy is the hero of his story. How we are saved, we want, to, we want it to include our actions. We may not believe we were the sole source of our salvation. There is certainly something God did. But like the Galatians, we want to believe we played a role in our salvation story. We like to tweak it. We want to say, I did it. I decided to follow Jesus. I defeated that sin in my life. I figured out why Christianity is the true religion. We, we want to be like Andy. We, we want to emphasize how we strived to gain our salvation, defeating the power of sin, crawling through garbage to gain our freedom. As Paul looks back to conversion into the faith, his point you must be convinced it wasn't you. It was Christ crucified. The Spirit was a gift to you. It was God's work on your behalf. It wasn't 50% God and 50% you. It wasn't 75% God and 25% you. It wasn't 90% God and 10% you. Christ was crucified for your sin. You were given a new life. You were given the Spirit. I was reading a a book this past week by Greg Gilbert, which touches upon this very topic. And he was getting at anything less than believing it was the 100% 100 of the work of God in your life means we lower God from being our Savior to seeing ourself in such a position. It cheapens what he accomplished for us. Listen, you nor I were whipped or beaten after having lived an innocent life. You nor I carried the cross with Christ. You nor I had the nails pounded into our hands. You nor I had the wrath of God poured out on us. You nor I were separated from the love of God. He crawled through the tunnel for us. Because you nor I could fix our faults and our failures. There is such a chasm, we couldn't do it. Stop living like your good works saved you. So conversion into the faith is the first angle Paul uses to make his point. The second angle is he looks at at continuing in the faith. 
Let's, let's resume the text with verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to excuse me? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. This language being perfected. It means to bring to an end. Or to accomplish. So if Paul is looking backwards in verses 1 and 2. At how we begin the Christian life. He is now looking at how we continue in the Christian life. And how we conclude the Christian life. His point. How Christians are converted into the faith is how they continue in the faith. It is the Spirit, the work of God on our behalf, not works of the flesh. Paul talks about how they suffer many things, how they experience manifestation, manifestations of God at work, things like miracles. You don't experience his work in your life because you earned it. It is his gift So if Paul wanted us to wrestle with what made us acceptable to God, what freed us from the power of sin and death, now he wants us to wrestle with what do you believe continues to make you righteous? What do you believe continues to make you acceptable to God? Now let me clarify why these questions are a little bit different, okay? Let's think about my job at Hillcrest where I I work as a therapist and and supervisor. At some point, I can look back to a day when I accepted an offer of employment. This is how I entered a new position and how I moved into a position where I had favor from my employer. But how do I continue in that position? How, How do I continue in favor with my employer? What serves as the source of strength to sustain that position? Well, primarily, it's based on my performance. How well I execute my job duties. How well I function as a therapist and manager. That keeps me working there. That keeps me in that position. That keeps me in good favor with those I'm employed to. So there there may be a little bit of a difference in how I entered this new position, And how I keep that position. What about the Christian life? If I can look back and know that God's work made me clean. And made me acceptable to God. I know I entered a new position. I was saved. I had favor with God. I was clean. What serves as the source of strength to sustain that position? to keep me growing in righteousness? What do I believe continues to make me worthy of his his favor? Is it the work of God on my behalf? Or, like, like my job, is it my performance? Is it my ability to live in a morally mature way? Many of us embrace 
God's work on our behalf as what converts us into the faith, but we embrace believing our works is what continues us in the faith. We trust in a false gospel. This performance-based mindset, believing our works as the source of strength to sustain our favor with the Lord, to sustain that we are worthy in his eyes, it could play out in how we read the Bible. It could play out in how we pray. It could play out in how we engage in daily devotionals or how we engage in community or how we engage in attending church. Like a performance review, if we meet what we perceive to be God's standards, we feel good. But, but if we don't, if we don't meet what we believe to, what we perceive to be God's standards, we are defined by things like guilt and shame and fear and anxiety. One of the moments it is most evident how we embrace performance in making us righteous is when we are confronted with our own sin. Maybe, maybe they're sins of pride and arrogance. Maybe they're sins of how we treat others. Maybe they're sins of how we view others. Maybe they're sins of how we get angry and, and lose our patience and respond in unrighteous ways. When you are confronted with your sin, how do you respond in such a moment? Embarrassment? Defensiveness? Denial? In the book, Repentance, Pastor Jack Miller describes how we often revert to works to pay the penalty for our sins. He uses the term penance to describe such a disposition or practice. It is a religious attitude deeply rooted in the human heart, which prompts people to pay for their own sins by good works and sufferings. Self-justification is the, the goal of this effort. In practice, this means humanity has one more scheme for getting things right with God and their conscience. Sinners doing penance always say in their hearts, give me one more day a new religious duty, another program, another set of human relationships or better education, and then things will come right side up. They are are preparationists. That is, sinners who are forever getting ready for grace. They want to make themselves worthy of grace so that God will reach out to them when once this work of preparation is completed. He's describing how we believe to be righteous, we must be holy and good. We are the source of the strength of what makes us right with God. Living a right moral life is what makes us worthy of God's favor and makes us acceptable to him. Paul is saying, continuing in the Christian faith, it is not about striving. It is not about works of the flesh. It is the spirit who continues us in the faith. It is, it is his work on our behalf. So the way we started the Christian life is the same way we continue and complete 
the Christian life. Stop living like your good works save you. Now, before we transition to the third point, I want to return to the scenario at the beginning of this sermon. We talked about two individuals with very similar actions. And we said one may be rooted in the Christian faith while the other may not be. What marks someone rooted in in the Christian faith? What is the difference between the one who trusts in Christ as the source of righteousness and the one who trusts in self as the source of righteousness? In verses 1 through 5, Paul repeats the phrase, hearing with faith. He uses it twice. This characteristic It marks someone who is rooted in the faith. Trust, belief, hearing with faith, more than being an action we perform, is something that happens to us. You hear something, it grabs you, and you believe it. It is not your works, but rather your trust in God's work. So to conclude Paul's thought, stop living like your good works save you. To to help us understand this perspective, he provides a case in point from the faith. Let's read verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul Paul is appealing uh, to a particular person of the faith to make his point. Someone who has been someone who has been pronounced acceptable to God who has been made righteous. And in doing so, Paul isn't just appealing to any person of the faith. He appeals to the spiritual forefather of the faith, of the Jewish faith and of the Christian faith. I don't want want to get into too many details this morning about the life of Abraham. Pastor, Pastor Chris is going to cover much more referenced in Galatians 3 next week. But for now... Here's what, I, here's what I want you to know. Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 15. And in that chapter, we, we know that Abraham was given a promise of what God would do and how he would work. It was very apparent that Abraham would not be able to fulfill that promise. He would not be able to carry out and make happen what God promised would happen. He he would have to trust in God's work and his promise. Abraham does. God declares him to be righteous. Now, the timing of God declaring Abraham to be righteous in Genesis chapter 15 is critical. Because the act of circumcision, this is the act that seems to be causing so much controversy and tension for the Galatians as they were believing faith in Christ and the act of circumcision were necessary to be righteous, to be made holy in God's sight. The act of circumcision, it has not yet been introduced. It will not be introduced for another 14 years or so. Paul points out God declares Abraham righteous before he was circumcised. The act of circumcision did not make him righteous. Abraham was also declared righteous hundreds of years before the institution of the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. 
So appealing to a case in point from the faith, what makes someone righteous? It is not works of the flesh. It is not our religious practice. It is not our moral behavior. It is trusting in God's work, belief in what he has done and what he will do. So a a potential question or concern some of you may have at this point. If, If trust in God's work is what roots me in the faith, how do I know if I'm trusting enough? I have so many doubts. Doubts about the strength of God's character. Doubts about myself. I struggle with sin. I struggle to believe Christ's work on the cross is enough. I doubt whether or not I'm a Christian so many moments. My faith feels so weak. How do I know if I'm believing and trusting in God's work enough for me to be rooted in the Christian faith? How can I be confident? This is the wrong question to ask. This is where we make trusting in God's work rooted in our abilities and our strength. It is not how strong or weak we are trusting that matters, but rather what we are trusting in. Pastor and author Timothy Keller articulates this well in his book, The Reason for God. Imagine you are on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you as you fall is a branch sticking out of the very edge of the cliff. It is your only hope and it is more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty, if you have a really strong faith, that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. A Christian is not righteous because of what they do, because of what they have done, because of their actions, or because of the strength of their faith. A Christian is righteous because of what God has done, trusting in his work on your behalf. Stop living like your good works save you. As we conclude, I want, I want to take a moment and apply this big idea to, to a few situations that may awaken us from trusting in good works to make us righteous, to make us how we believe that we need works to make us worthy of God's favor. I was recently involved in a couple conversations discussing a celebrity who had been seen with a Bible and a book about marriage written by a prominent Christian author. The story surrounding this celebrity is that he had experienced a spiritual awakening and was professing faith in Christ. The conversations I had questioned whether or not he could be a Christian. Why? Well, in some sense, as we observed, as we observed his life, we did not believe his actions were holy enough 
to make him a Christian. He needed to be doing something more. He needed to be living a particular way. He needed to to demonstrate a particular set of actions. Now, I should should clarify, I'm not saying there aren't false converts to the Christian faith. There certainly are. Scripture tells us stories of such individuals. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about the practices or actions or behaviors of brothers and sisters in Christ. Scripture teaches us and guides us to have conversations and to pray for brothers and sisters when concerned about their behavior. However, isn't it interesting At times, we doubt or affirm whether or not someone is a Christian based on performance, what they do or what they do not do. And there are certain actions or sins that, in our minds, disqualify someone from being a Christian. You probably have your list. Let me me suggest a few that may, may be floating around. Could a Christian struggle with being addicted to drugs? Or would that immediately disqualify them from the Christian faith? Could, could a Christian be engaged in extramarital affairs? Or would that immediately disqualify them from the Christian faith? If we go back a few hundred years, could a Christian have owned slaves? Today, could a Christian be involved in sins that are racist and oppress minorities? Or could a Christian be involved in a same-sex relationship? Many of us have a list of sins in our minds that disqualify others from being a Christian. It is only when they have abandoned such practices that they could be deemed holy and righteous. It is not our actions that make us righteous. It is God's action on our behalf. Stop living like it is good works that save. Let's let's think about another situation. For those of you that participate in gospel community, a couple weeks ago we we were discussing how the Apostle Paul was defending the gospel. And we entertained the question, what, what things other than the gospel do you find yourself giving the most energy to guarding? We were asking a question to help us become aware of ongoing sin patterns. So maybe someone provided examples like, I give a lot of energy to guarding my kids' education. Or I give a lot of energy to guarding my job. Or I give a lot of energy to guarding my right to do particular things. Or I give a lot of energy to guard my personal success or personal status or my personal comfort. These are things we tend to defend other than the gospel. So as one or two others shared about sin in their life, beads beads of sweat began to form on your forehead. Hey, gospel community leader, please don't ask me to answer that question. Please ask someone else. In such a moment, you may be tempted to perform. You may struggle to be weak. You may struggle to be honest and real. You believe that in such a moment, you have to be put together in front of others and you can't be honest about your sin and how you're weak. If we truly believed the work of Christ makes us righteous, 
there is great freedom to confess. Because confession isn't a sign of weak faith. It's actually a sign that you are standing on your faith. That you believe Christ has forgiven your sin. And it is not your works that make you clean and not your ability to stop sinning that makes you righteous. It is the work of Christ on your behalf that makes you righteous. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders, he gives up all his evil, he gives his heart to God, and he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. The expressed, acknowledged sin has lost all its power. When you confess sin to a brother or sister in Christ, you are living as though Christ saved you. There is freedom to be weak, and there is freedom to be real. Stop living like your good works save you. Lastly, let me, let me speak to non-Christians. And when I say non-Christians, I could be talking to people who have never claimed a faith tradition, or I could be talking to people who have grown up in trusting in religious rituals to be righteous. In either case, maybe you heard with faith this morning. You, you may hear Christians sometimes use the phrase, we are saved by grace. This word grace, it means we have been given an undeserved gift. The good news of the gospel is this. Christ died for the sin of sinners. And all the ways you fail to live like you know you should, all the ways you know you have hurt others, Christ took those on himself. You don't have to continue to beat yourself up over those things. You don't have to try to make yourself feel a certain way or do a certain thing to be forgiven. Forgiveness, being made clean, being made righteous, it's not about what you have done or what you might do. It's about what Christ has done. Surrender your striving. Surrender pursuing worth before others and before the Lord. Give up, give up the pursuit of good works. Stop living like your good works save you. Trust in his good work.